All right, we're back in the Fitz News studio for this week's edition of the Week in Review. Thanks for joining us. We've got a lot of Cheer Incorporated news to cover people, a new lawsuit with new survivors, new defendants. We're going to get into all the details of that, as well as a compelling interview with the mother of two of the victims in this saga. Again, high-profile allegations, high-profile accusers. We're going to hear directly from one of those folks who was experiencing this in an incredibly up-close and personal fashion. Also, we've got Murdoch Murders, Crime and Corruption News. We're going to take a look back at the cases that we've been following and kind of put those into context as we look forward to looming court dates in three of those Murdoch-related trials. We're going to tell you about those three trials. We're going to tell you exactly how the pieces of this puzzle are starting to fit as it relates to those upcoming hearings. And finally, we're going to take a look at Palmetto political news. There hadn't been much of it because the races in South Carolina are just so non-competitive. Republicans dominate this state. They have for decades. Democrats struggling to gain traction. We're going to talk about those races. And unfortunately, we're not going to talk about competition. We're going to talk about whether or not the GOP candidates are going to beat the spread or not. All that and much more coming your way on the Week in Review. All right, so we're going to start this week's edition with the Cheer Incorporated scandal, where we continue to see an escalation of this still unfolding saga. New cases, new victims, survivors, new defendants, and again, new states. This week, we saw the first case filed in North Carolina, which is the third state where we've seen a lawsuit filed in federal court related to this alleged epidemic of sexual abuse in the American cheerleading industry. So I want to, before we get into the North Carolina case, I want to recount quickly where we are on the federal lawsuit front. We currently have six federal lawsuits filed in three states. We've got four in South Carolina, which is where all of this started back in August with the Rockstar Cheer saga and the suicide of 49-year-old Scott Foster, the former owner and founder of that gym. But four cases tied to Rockstar in South Carolina. We've got a case in Memphis, Tennessee. We've got a case now in Raleigh, North Carolina. And again, additional lawsuits coming both in Tennessee and North Carolina, as well as cases coming in Georgia, Florida, Maryland, potentially other states. So again, this case is escalating, but we're going to continue to see it escalate as these additional lawsuits are filed. But I did want to talk about the North Carolina case today because this was a very interesting development in the evolution of this ongoing saga. The North Carolina case, for the first time, featured direct allegations of sexual abuse, and yet the individuals who perpetrated this abuse, according to the suit, were not named. That's correct. There were three individuals, a coach, a senior coach, and a choreographer who were affiliated with the Cheer Extreme gym up there in Raleigh, North Carolina. And according to the lawsuit, all three of these engaged in inappropriate behavior, and in fact, in one case, what would amount to be sexual assault with an underage John Doe. However, their names weren't mentioned in the lawsuit. Why? The lawsuit did reference, however, that information related to these incidents was turned over to law enforcement. That was Bakari Sellers, one of the attorneys in the case, made that comment, informing us that indeed some of the allegations contained in this lawsuit have been reported to local law enforcement authorities. So it's an interesting development, though, because the lawsuit named as defendants the gym, Cheer Extreme, the owners of the gym, uh, and two coaches at the gym, yet none of the individuals named are accused of actually committing the abuses. They were accused of, of witnessing it, of of knowing about it, of failing to report, of, of, of sort of accommodating and tolerating this behavior, which, as we know from this entire story, is one of the real issues here, is the perpetual accommodation of this sort of behavior. 
the enabling of it, in fact, by some of the very entities which were supposed to protect child athletes. But it's an interesting development because if you go to the previous cases, the four cases in South Carolina and the case in Tennessee, the alleged abusers are named. They are listed as defendants. So, again, Attorney Sellers has told the media that, that he and his co-counsels uh, counselors rather reserve the right to add those names in the future, but they did not include them in the lawsuit filed in North Carolina, which is a very interesting development. Now, at this point, I did want to read a brief response. We received it yesterday from Cheer Extreme from the Raleigh, North Carolina gym named in the federal lawsuit, and I want to read it real quick. It's from the uh, owner and operator of that facility, Kelly Helton, one of the defendants, one of the named defendants in the suit. Here's what Kelly Helton had to say. And I quote, to whom it may concern, we've just become aware of a lawsuit filed against Cheer Extreme by a John Doe. We have not yet been served with a copy of the complaint. We're discussing this matter with our legal counsel and have no other comments at this time. So, again, not addressing it because apparently they have not received the copy of the complaint. Obviously, they can read it online if they want the details, but I uh, certainly understand them not commenting prior to receiving it and certainly understand them wishing to consult with their counsel. Now, this response is interesting because I want to rewind the clock to last week's episode where we addressed the response from what I would argue is the central defendant in this case or in these series of cases, and that would be Varsity. Varsity, of course, the for-profit company based in Memphis, Tennessee, founded by Jeff Webb, the uh, grandfather, godfather of the modern cheer industry. This is a multi-billion dollar company. It was purchased a few years back by Bain Capital for nearly $3 billion. It does a ton of business in the cheer industry. And in fact, there's actually a lawsuit, a separate lawsuit, accusing it of some unfair trade practices uh, as it relates to its dominance of this, of this marketplace. But from the beginning, I have looked at Varsity as kind of the, I've called it the 400-pound gorilla, the behemoth, the sort of the central defendant here, because again, all of these allegations revolve around its ownership and dominance, not only of the for-profit side of the cheer industry, which again is one thing, I'm not against people making money and dominating industries, I, you know, more power to them. You make, you make a good product and, you know, I've got no problem with that. But here's the problem. Not only did Varsity control that for-profit side, but it also controlled the supposed protection of these athletes through entities like US, USASF, the U.S. All-Star Federation, and USA Cheer. Now, these were governing bodies that were supposed to be independent, that were supposed to be protectors of these child athletes. They, were, they, were, they exist for, for the purpose of maintaining and upholding the integrity of competitive cheer, which, by the way, when I got into this, I didn't look at cheerleading as a sport. That has changed, folks. The modern competitive cheer, this is a sport, okay? In fact, I support their bid for Olympic recognition and, and participation in the Olympic Games because th this is a sport, just like gymnastics. It's, it's the movements, the synchronization. It's incredible. The choreography. And I see why kids, young athletes, are drawn to it. And that's a good thing. They should be. It's, it's something aspirational. It's something... Again, American, distinctly American. We should be proud of this. But, and this is a key point here, but so many of the adults entrusted with those dreams, with those children's dreams, abused that trust. And that's why we're here. 
That's why these lawsuits are, have been filed. So as we talk about that, I wanted to pivot. And again, stay tuned, Fitz News covering all of these lawsuits and the latest details there. But I wanted to pivot because we're talking about these voices. We're talking about those dreams that were taken advantage of along with these vulner- vulnerable young adults. We had an opportunity this week to speak with the mother of two of those victims. And in fact, their abuser is a very famous individual in the cheer industry, a cheer celebrity, they call them. And I'm talking about Jerry Harris, who's made famous by the Netflix cheer documentary. Well, in July of this year, a month before Scott Foster's suicide, Harris pleaded guilty in federal court and was sentenced to over a decade in prison for his conduct with these two young boys. Their mother, Kristen, spoke with Arjun Wood, our resident cheer mom and director of research. She spoke about what it was like to go through this process, about how the industry worked to silence those voices and how hard it was to get the truth out. And as this story moves forward, people, I can't think of a more important conversation to have. I can't think of a more important conversation for us to have because if people are afraid to speak up, then we're never going to get anywhere fixing this industry. And I'm going to get into that in a minute, but before that, I wanted to cut to a clip from Jen Wood's incredible interview with Kristen. One of the things that I've heard over and over again from the current survivors that are going through this now is that it's been easier because there's been it's more than one you know it's like they they feel safer that there's a chorus of voices and the same names keep coming up and I always think about you and your boys um and how brave and how difficult it must have been standing alone against somebody as well known as Jerry um, and I think, you know, well, the people involved in the industry and, you know, most people that are heavily involved in the industry knew that this was a pervasive problem, but to the public, it, 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 it wasn't. And I don't know that it still is. Right. Um, I mean, for you, that experience for you, do you think, I'm just trying to think of the question. Um, you know, do you have advice for people that are going through this now? Well, I mean, just to to respond to the per- first part of your question about having gone through it alone, um, we have felt, I would say, very very acutely over the past two plus years. Um, the fact that we were going through this alone. To be very honest with you, when part of the reason that we chose to speak as publicly as we did is because we knew that this was happening um, to other people and with other perpetrators. And we hoped to sort of pave a path for people to speak up. Um, And we expected that after we reported that there would be other people that would come forward and report as well. And instead we've sort of been out at the tip of the spear all by ourselves um, 
for a couple of years now, which has been really, really difficult. There have been a number of people that have been very, very supportive of us. And there have been people who have been vocally supportive of us. Um, there have also been an awful lot of people that have opposed our efforts. There have been an awful lot of people that have been extremely cruel to my sons, um, both um, adults as well as other athletes. Um, the extent of the um, just isolation and um, the extent to which my sons were ostracized, um, especially in the immediate aftermath of our speaking up, um, it was pretty stunning um, and really made their existing trauma all that much worse. And so I, um, I'm happy for the survivors who are speaking out now to be able to be doing it, like you say, as part of a chorus of voices, because um, we were singing a, a solo for a long time and it was really tough. Um, I suppose the advice that I would have for maybe people who are um, thinking about speaking up is that now is the time to do it. There is, I think we're on the verge of the critical mass that is required to make change happen, but we need as many voices to be a part of that course as possible in order to force the change that is necessary. All right, some incredibly powerful stuff there, folks. And I just want to remind our audience, if you haven't listened to it yet, the first half of that interview is available on our Cheer Incorporated podcast. You can download it on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. But please give it a listen. If you haven't already, now's a great time to start because that's the kind of content we are committed to bringing to this story. And again, I want to thank Kristen for her willingness to speak with us. The second half of that interview, by the way, will be coming up in the next edition of Cheer Incorporated. And Kristen's going to talk about not only how individual survivors of this story can make their way through this challenging ground, this incredibly treacherous ground, how they can navigate that, but also what's next for the industry. What happens when the industry gets to the other side of that? So again, be sure to listen to Cheer Incorporated for the very latest on this story. So the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption saga is probably the biggest story this news outlet has ever covered, but it is also the most complicated, the most convoluted, the most confusing, to be honest, and a lot of other words that start with C, I'm sure. But the story's just crazy. It's so multifaceted, so deep, so layered, so nuanced. You've got state and federal investigations. You've got civil and criminal cases. It's all just hard to follow, uh, particularly with a growing cast of characters as we start to see that this conspiracy involved more than just two people. So one of the things I thought would be worthwhile in this segment would be to kind of pull the lens back a little bit and take a look at the current cases that are coming up for trial here in the next few months so that we can sort of break this down and compartmentalize this a little bit to the extent that this story can be compartmentalized. But Right now, we're looking at essentially three trials, and I want to start with the one that's coming up 
most most immediately, most directly, which would be the federal trial of Russell Lafitte. Now, Russell Lafitte, for those of you who have been following the story, you know him very well. He's the former president of the Palmetto State Bank. He was a childhood friend of Alec Murdoch's who allegedly, according to federal and state prosecutors, participated in Murdoch's schemes to defraud his former clients while he worked at the PMPED law firm down there in Hampton, South Carolina. All manner of fleecings, multiple incidents of of ripping people off, particularly people who were poor, who were disabled, you know, just the worst kind of crime you can imagine, folks, stealing from people who absolutely needed that money. But um, as we look at this story, as we look at the federal case, Lafitte's case has been significant, and this news outlet covered it extensively over the course of the past month because in Lafitte's case we have learned that he may have evidence that points to this broader conspiracy, particularly audio recordings, multiple audio recordings, which would seem to implicate not only others at Palmetto State Bank in the allegations that have been leveled against Murdoch, but also others at Murdoch's former law firm. Because again, one of the questions from the very beginning of this story, at least as it relates to the financial crimes component, was how did these two guys steal nearly $10 million from all these people and no one was the wiser for like over a decade? How's that happen? Well, most people would argue it doesn't. Most people would argue they had help. And if Russell Lafitte's tapes are admitted in the federal case, we might learn a little bit about that help. But here's the thing. Lafitte's trial is coming up quick. And I, I brought it up first because it's the first one on the calendar, people. Scheduled to start first week of November. Actually, there November 9th is what, what's looking like the first day. So I guess that would be the second week. But early November is the start date for this trial, folks. We could see a jury seated perhaps as soon as November 7 in this case, assuming it comes off as scheduled, which again is a big if because there are so many moving parts, not only to the federal case, but to these other cases that we're, we're covering. And I wanted to bring those up because this is where the timing really gets interesting. There are two cases tied to the Murdoch saga, the other two big cases that we're talking about today. Civil case, the wrongful death case that dates back to that 2019 boat crash involving the late Paul Murdoch, which really is what propelled the Murdochs to the statewide stage. I think before that boat crash, unless you lived in the 14th Circuit, the Murdochs, you may have heard of them, but they were by no means a household name at that point. But it was that boat crash and the allegations of obstructed justice in its aftermath. And again, the fact that you had this, this beautiful young 19-year-old girl whose life was tragically cut short, that was a magnet. It just drew people to this story. People wanted to know why. Why, did, why was her life cut short? And when they dug into it, what they saw was, you know, at least according to the prosecutors who charged him with three counts of boating under the influence, they saw this privileged, reckless young individual, Paul Murdoch, fifth generation of this incredibly powerful family, which it seemed clear in the aftermath of that crash pulled out all the stops in an effort to get him off, to absolve him of any culpability in that crash. But that wrongful death case against the Murdoch family and also against several other co-defendants who are alleged to have contributed to that crash, that case is scheduled for trial on January the 9th of this coming year, 2023. Now, earlier this week, I attended a hearing in the Lexington County Courthouse 
before Judge Daniel Hall. Hall is the presiding judge in that case. Hall said that along with the attorneys in this case, that he is very closely watching the timing on the double homicide case, which again is the third and the highest profile of all these stories. And again, I mentioned earlier how that boat crash propelled the Murdochs onto the statewide stage. Well, it was the June 7, 2021 double homicide in which Alec Murdoch is accused of killing his wife, Maggie Murdoch, and Paul Murdoch, the driver in that boat crash, accused of killing them on the family's hunting property there in Colleton County, South Carolina. And this was the, the incident that, again, propelled the Murdochs to the national and even the international stage. So that case, that's the one that's, that's driving most of the Murdoch coverage, that's driving most of the international attention on this family. And I think that if you look at that trial, and if you look at the timing, I felt that Murdoch's attorneys had a very good point when they pushed for a delay, a delay in that wrongful death case. Their argument very simply, look, if our guys stand in trial for, for murder on January 23rd, which is the date that that double homicide trial is scheduled to start as of now, then how can he be expected to spend two weeks in a, a civil case literally right before that? And I think that's a fair point. Again, I've been heavily critical, sharply critical of, of attorneys Dick Harpootlian and Jim Griffin in this case, but I think, I think they made a good argument there. And it's very clear that Judge Hall is looking at the timing on the criminal case, which is being handled by South Carolina Circuit Court Judge Clifton Newman. And then, again, at some point we're going to get a schedule for when these cases are going to go, but what, what is going to drive that schedule? Based on everything we've seen so far, it appears to me that we are waiting on certain evidence to come back, whether it's the geofencing, geotagging data, which according to my law enforcement and prosecutorial sources is coming out kind of in staggered chunks. We're getting more and more pieces of the puzzle. But we know that Judge Hall and the attorneys in this case are all watching the timing on this criminal case, on that double homicide, because again, that's going to set everything. The timing of that double homicide case is going to set everything on the wrongful death case and on the criminal and civil cases to come on the state level. Because again, let's not forget, Alec Murdoch is not just facing a wrongful death case on the civil case. He's not just facing a double homicide rap. He's also been accused of 90 individual counts of criminal, financial criminal activity, stealing nearly $10 million from former clients. All those charges have got to be tried at some point. He's still under a statewide grand jury investigation for alleged obstruction from the boat crash. So we got that to consider too. He's going to have to stand trial for that at some point as well. So again, all of this though hinges on when does the double homicide trial start? And according to my sources, that is based entirely on the availability of evidence, on, the, on what the state has gotten back from it's geofencing, geotagging, cell phone record requests, which according to my law enforcement sources and prosecutorial sources and other sources close to this case indicate is coming kind of in chunks, staggered. When they get that full picture, that's when we're going to have a, a go date on the trial. But it was very interesting. Last week in Florence, South Carolina, there was a hearing where Clifton Newman, who was presiding over that double homicide case, expressed satisfaction with the timing, with how things were progressing. In fact, he said that both the prosecution and the defense, in his estimation, were both 
doing an admirable job, that was his word, admirable, in getting ready to try the case on January 23rd. So I believe Clifton Newman's going to push that time frame, again, provided all the relevant evidence comes in in a timely manner, allowing both prosecution and defense to analyze it. Because let's not forget, we heard something new this week. I attended that court hearing in Lexington County, South Carolina. Harputlian, Dick Harputlian, Alec Murdoch's lead attorney, announced that he had already retained six expert witnesses and spent six figures on them. Now, where's he getting that money? That's been a big question from the beginning of the story, hadn't it? Who's paying Alec Murdoch's lawyers? How's he paying if he is, uh, in the words of Attorney Harputlian, impecunious? How's he paying for him if he's broke? Well, we got one answer to that question this week when Judge Hall approved Alec Murdoch's liquidation of his 401k retirement fund from when he worked at the former PMPD law firm. Now, the amount of that fund was $1.7 million, according to Amy Hill, one of the court-appointed receivers in the wrongful death case. But after taxes, after penalties, only around $900,000 available uh, after the IRS took its chunk. Now, of that, $600,000 will go to Alec Murdoch's double homicide legal defense, particularly to the expert witnesses that Harpootlian and Griffin referenced. Now, there's been a lot of criticism, a lot of, I've seen a lot of tweets, a lot of commentary on social media kind of taken after the defense attorneys for enriching themselves with this money. I'm told very little of this money is actually going to make it into their pockets. This is all going to the expert witnesses. And one of the things Harpootlian has mentioned in his conversations with reporters, he's, he's told them they're not making money on this case, but they're not going to lose money on it either. And again, I think that's that's understandable. A lot of folks upset with that settlement uh, because, again, of the 900000 that flowed down, 600000 went to Murdoch's attorneys. Only 300000 went to the fund for his victims. A lot of people said that's unfair. I actually raised that point with some of the court-appointed receivers, and their argument, which was made in their filings, was essentially that, look, if it weren't for him liquidating this money, we would not have had access to it. Because, again, there are strict protections on what receivers can access for these kind of settlements. 401k money is not accessible, again, unless it is liquidated. So, basically, this was $300,000 that they would not have otherwise been able to access had Murdoch not uh, liquidated that fund. Now, is that fair? Again, there's an argument that can cut both ways, but the deal was done. Judge Hall signed it. And the receivers indicated that they were happy with it, with getting that money that, again, would have otherwise been unavailable to the fund. Attorneys representing Alec Murdoch's former law partners and his former law firm are pushing back against allegations that they were involved in this broader conspiracy that we've been referring to. And I'm referencing a response to a civil case that was filed earlier this month in which Alec Murdoch's former law partners were accused of conspiring with him and with Russell Lafitte, and with Palmetto State Bank, of ripping off a trust fund account belonging to a Manuel Santis Cristiani. This is a Mexican national who was injured in a 2008 car crash. He was entitled to receive around $70,000. Now, according to this response to the lawsuit, Santis Cristiani was paid this money in full from the settlement, which was reached back in 2013 in this case. Not only that, the $70,000, which was allegedly stolen by Alec Murdoch was money intended not for him, but for the Medical University of South Carolina for his medical bills. Now, the filing in this case, the response again, 
from Alec Murdoch's former law partners, not only did it dispute the claims made in the case filed against them, but actually pushed for sanctions against the attorney who filed it, Glenn Walters Sr. of Orangeburg, South Carolina. Not only, again, did these former Murdoch attorneys insist that they did no wrong, but they actually want sanctions to be leveled against the attorney that brought this suit, claiming that he did not do his due diligence in leveling these allegations against them. So some significant pushback there. Also want to point out some pushback from attorneys close to Murdoch's criminal defense and some other sources related to a report that we published last weekend regarding some potential witness testimony in the upcoming murder trial. We're talking about that blue rain jacket, which was, according to our sources, found in the vicinity of the Almeida home of Murdoch's parents, Randolph Murdoch III, the late solicitor, and his mother, again, coated in gunshot residue, according to our sources. This was portrayed to us, at least, as a key piece of potential evidence in the upcoming trial. But again, sources close to Murdoch, who are familiar with his criminal defense, have indicated that they believe this blue rain jacket will be a non-starter, particularly they are alleging that there is no DNA linking it to Murdoch, which would obviously be significant. So we're going to have to see how that plays out. Again, one of many unanswered questions as that trial approaches. But again, for everything Murdoch-related, keep it tuned to Fitz News as we continue to focus on this multifaceted, multilayered maze of alleged criminality. All right, so in South Carolina, elections are decided in the Republican primary. If you're running for a statewide office in South Carolina, whether it's U.S. Senate, governor, superintendent of education, attorney general, secretary of state, you name it, any of these statewide offices, the race is decided in the Republican primary. And the reason for that is that South Carolina is such an overwhelmingly Republican state that it has been decades, decades since a Democrat won at the top of the ticket. In fact, let's rewind the clock here. We're going to go back to 1998 when U.S. Senator Fritz Hollings won his final term in Washington, D.C. That is the last time a Democrat has won a top of the ticket statewide race. A Democrat has not won a statewide race, period, since 2006. And that was a superintendent of education race. Jim Rex was the victor that year in 2006. He has, by the way, left the Democratic Party, no longer a member of the party. And that was the closest election in state history, by the way, won by literally a handful of votes back in 2006. So if you're a Democrat running statewide, bad odds, people, really bad odds. And in this upcoming election, which is scheduled for November 8th this year, incumbent Governor Henry McMaster, he served six years already. He's running for a final four-year term. He's up against former U.S. Congressman Joe Cunningham, Democrat from Kentucky, uh, who has represented the uh, first district uh, of the U.S. Congress. He represented him for two years prior to getting beat back in 2020. But Cunningham, not going to win people. In fact, the question that I'm asking is not really the outcome of this race, which has never been in doubt, but it's simply it's a point spread question. Okay, is it, it, I, I would put it like this. McMaster's favored to win by a touchdown. The only question is, does he cover the spread? Does he cover the spread? Similarly, the first congressional district race, Nancy Mace, who defeated Cunningham back in 2020 there in the first congressional district, which includes Charleston and Beaufort. Is she going to cover that touchdown spread? I think she will. I think both of them are going to cover it, to be perfectly honest. I put I put Mace winning by 10, and I'll put McMaster winning by 8. Those are my predictions. Go ahead, write them down, people. You want to you lose some money on a political wager. Those are my predictions. But um, 
The only other question I've got is the write-in candidacy up in Greenville, South Carolina. If you've been following this news outlet, you know that the 4th District Congressional Representative, William Timmons, has had a bit of a bumpy couple months. Right after he won his party's nomination, very unconvincingly, I might add, he released a bizarre statement to this news outlet asking for prayers and privacy as he and his wife went through a difficult personal matter. Well, it turns out the difficult personal matter was a mistress, one that William Timmons, the congressman up there, second-term congressman, has been uh, seen out and about with. In fact, we had reports as recently as last month about the two of them together up in Washington, D.C., which is interesting because according to our sources in Greenville, he's trying to reconcile with his wife. So we'll have to see where that story goes. But the bottom line is that Timmons' bizarre decision to come forward with this public statement and his handling of this since, including the antics of the estranged husband of his paramour, Ron Rollis, who, again, has just been driving that story, uh, that has conspired to put William Timmons in a very difficult position. But, again, luckily for him, he's a Republican running in the most Republican district in South Carolina, one of them at least, and he's unopposed, literally unopposed. So William Timmons is going to win a third term in the U.S. Congress despite this huge scandal, which he has botched from the beginning. But the only question I've got is this. How many votes will the write-in candidate against him receive? That Now, Democrats, again, did not run anyone in the 4th District. They have no nominee. It's a sign of just how utterly inept and, and, and uncompetitive this party is in South Carolina. No nominee in that 4th District, but there is a write-in candidate, Lee Turner. In fact, I spoke with her earlier this week up in Greenville. She's got an op-ed on our website this weekend discussing why she's running against William Timmons. But how many votes will she get? What percentage will she get? Usually write-ins in South Carolina get very fractional, fractional turnout, folks. I think Lee Turner's going to do better than 3%. I think it's going to be a real surprise up there. And hopefully a sign that write-in candidacies, which were, again, haven't seen one work since Strom Thurmond back in the 1950s. But hopefully this will be a sign that write-in candidacies can at least have some small impact on this process and let folks know that, again, there are choices available to you outside of this red-blue false narrative that we keep getting fed by the mainstream media and the politicians in this state. So, again, counting us to keep you up to speed on all those. Remember, Fist News is a political website, folks. That's how we started. That's how we started, covering the first in the South presidential elections every four years, which, again, those are going to heat up next year. But if you want to know what's happening, if you want the pulse of South Carolina politics, and if you want the unvarnished truth, whether we're hitting Republicans, whether we're hitting Democrats, we call it balls and strikes both ways, people. Keep it tuned to Fitz News for your latest political fix. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's edition of the Week in Review. As you can see, the legal pad is done. Nothing left on it. That means we've covered everything that we wanted to get to this week. But before we go, just a quick personal note. A few months ago, you might remember on this show, I announced that Fitz News was getting out of the credit business. In other words, that this news outlet was no longer going to concern itself with who gave us credit for reports that we broke first ahead of other media outlets. And this is important because, again, there's a caveat to that that I want to I talk about moving forward. Not only are we not concerned anymore about whether we get credit, but we're going to get out of this exclusive business. Again, if you read our stories, there's a lot of references to exclusive this, exclusive that. And again, in most of cases, they're stories that we broke, big stories, relevant stories to some of these national narratives that we've been following. But 
One thing I've realized, folks, is nobody cares. Nobody cares if you were there first. They don't. And in fact, if you can consistently complain about it, it just turns people off. It turns people off. I'm giving an interview for a book on the Murdoch Murders, Crime and Corruption Saga by a journalist here in South Carolina. And some of the questions that journalist is asking me relate to this very issue about local news outlets and how they do the job that they do. And so one of the commitments I want to make to you guys today as we continue to move forward with our coverage of these big stories, cheering, Murdoch murders, judicial corruption in South Carolina, political corruption in South Carolina, you name it. Here's the commitment I want to make to you. We're not going to toot our horn. We're not going to focus on what we're doing. There's some advice that a colleague of mine gave me recently, which I think is incredibly relevant. A colleague said this, said, look down, not around. Keep doing the thing. We're going to keep doing our job. And we're going to let the chips fall when it comes to who clicks, who reads, whatever. Because, again, it's not about who broke a story. Although we'll always give credit to reporters when they are first and grateful when they give us credit back. But, again, at the end of the day, nobody cares. It's about doing the job. And I want you to count on Fitz News as we move forward. A lot less focus on saying exclusive this and exclusive that. And a lot more focus on, again, doing the thing.